Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan, and I am the chair of the council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Today our guest is Justice Dini here, a judge of the Supreme Court. She was previously a judge of the District Court and in that role was responsible for creating the Wallama List. Her Honour will speak to us today about the creation of the list and its function in relation to the sentencing of Indigenous offenders. Welcome, Judge. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Judge, I think uh, you started life in the law, as it were, working for the Aboriginal Legal Service. Yes, for the Western Aboriginal Legal Service based in Dubbo and servicing um, a number of towns in Western New South Wales. And you were a solicitor in those days? I, I was, yes. That was my first job. I was admitted and went out west and commenced working as a solicitor. How long were you out, were you out west for? Seven years. That's quite a time. Where yes. were you based? So I was based in Dubbo, but we um, appeared in courts in Broken Hill, Burke, Wilcannia, um, Ningen and all the satellite courts around Dubbo. Local court and district court? Local court and district court and occasionally instructed counsel in the Supreme Court. And then I think after your time out west, as it were, uh, you joined the Public Defender's Office. So I came back to Sydney and worked for Legal Aid for a while and um, was a solicitor advocate with Legal Aid and then went to the bar and then joined the Public Defender's Office, yes. And when was that? When, when did you join them? So I joined the Public Defenders in 1999, came back from Western New South Wales in 1996 and then joined the Public Defenders in 1999. So I had three years with Legal Aid. And I think after a time you became Deputy Senior Public Defender. That's right. Can you just tell us, what's the Public Defender's Office? What, what does that do? So the Public Defenders um, are a group of barristers who are briefed to appear in serious uh, in trials involving serious criminal offences or allegations, usually instructed by legal aid or the Aboriginal Legal Service, um, and increasingly appearing in the Supreme Court, either in the appellate jurisdiction or in trials. Now, I think in 2013 or 2014, you were appointed as a judge of the District Court. Yes, 2014 in May. But not long before that appointment, you appeared in the High Court. Yes, in the in case... In a very important case in relation to Aboriginal offenders. Yes. It's known as the Bugby decision. Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about that case? Yes, of course. So that was an appeal against a, um, uh, a Court of Criminal Appeal, New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal decision in... Um, the case of Bugmy, and uh, what had happened was Mr Bugmy had been sentenced in the district court in respect of a number of offences that were committed against corrective service officers at Broken Hill Jail, and he'd received a term of imprisonment. The Crown appealed against the inadequacy of sentence, and um, that appeal was upheld in the Court of Criminal Appeal, and during the course of the judgment, it was stated that the weight to be afforded a person's background of disadvantage and deprivation diminishes over time and particularly where that person has a criminal record. Um, so that point was taken to the High Court. That was one of the grounds that that, was, uh, that demonstrated error. But we also um, got special leave and a number of other grounds including whether sentencing judges should take into account the systemic factors um, that relate to deprivation and disadvantage of Indigenous offenders as a result of colonisation. So that was the bigger point. The other, um, the narrower point, we lost the broader point and got up on the narrower point and um, Mr Bugmy, was, the matter was then remitted to the Court of Criminal Appeal. And they reconsidered and impose a different sentence. That's right. I think I, I didn't. I didn't appear when the matter was remitted to the Court of Criminal Appeal, but um, the inadequacy, the appeal against the inadequacy of sentence, was dismissed. So his original sentence stood. 
Oh, the original sentence. Oh, I see. So yes. The, I see, right. Well, after, what, nine years on the district court or thereabouts? Eight, yes. Eight. Yes. You were recently appointed as a judge of this, the Supreme Court. Yes. But before you came to the Supreme Court, you created a very significant development, or were responsible for creating a significant development in the district court, uh, which I think has now been given the name of the Wallamar List. Yes. Can you tell us about the origins of what's known as the Wallamar List? Yes, of course. Um, so the Wallamar List is... Uh, essentially an Indigenous sentencing list in the District Court. And the word Wallamar is a Darug word that means coming back or return. And in the context of the list, it is about coming back to a healthy, crime-free life, coming back to community and culture. What gave you the idea of developing such an approach to the sentencing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Well, I think, I mean, I, as um, you raised in the, in the beginning, I, my, I started my career at the Western Aboriginal Legal Service 32 years ago and worked out there for seven years and appeared for thousands of Aboriginal people. Um, when I came back to Sydney, both at Legal Aid and as Public Defender, I continued to appear for Aboriginal people. And... Um, over 32 years, I've seen the same issues come up, the same underlying issues. And generally speaking, this has not been the case in all um, matters, but generally speaking, the approach to sentencing has not really achieved the goals of reducing offending assisting people with the supports they need to live functional lives. So um, I think for me it was witnessing this happen at very close range for nearly 32 years um, and seeing that, well, reading the literature and seeing how other approaches to sentencing in therapeutic courts seem to have a better success rate. Um, so that was the the motivating factor. When you say therapeutic courts, there you have in mind the drug court. I have in mind the drug court. I have in mind the county curry court. Mm -hmm. I have in mind some of the Maori courts in New Zealand. Um, and and. And just the, the feedback from the participants, the elders and the community members about that, that way of engaging with Indigenous offenders and their communities is um, very powerful. I mean, part a very important objective is, of course, reducing reoffending and and just giving these offenders the supports so that they can live functional lives. But another objective of um, the Wallamar List is to have a meaningful and positive engagement with Aboriginal communities so that you can build relationships of respect as opposed to having Aboriginal people and communities um, see the courts as alien, alien mm -hmm. and part of the process that um, uh, alienates communities and individuals. And, you know, the, the, the history of um, Aboriginal people's contact with the courts has not been a happy history. So, the, as I say, the list is an Indigenous sentencing list. There's, there are eligibility criteria, so the participant... Um, um, must plead guilty, they must of course be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Some offences are excluded, like sexual assaults. Um, the matter then comes. Crimes of violence. Crimes of violence are not excluded except for the more serious crimes of violence. So, for instance, um, manslaughter, uh, inflicting grievous bodily harm with intent to do so. They're excluded, but everything else is not. 
and a crime with a weapon, is that excluded? Or no. That's, that's included. No, it's so included. a gun or a knife. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So that's included. I mean, the, the, the DPP retain um, a right to make an application to exclude matters that has not happened, but they can make an application to exclude matters if, for instance, the offence is considered too serious or if the participant has a very serious criminal history for violent offending, for example. But that has not happened to date. I think you developed the uh, idea of the Wallama list out of an original intention to see if you could create uh, an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander division of the district court. Yes, that's that right. That didn't happen, but the list is intended to fulfil a similar function. That's, that's true. Um, the list is capped at 50 just because of the, the um, resource issue. So we need more resources before we could expand it to um, greater numbers. But the Wallamar list is um, very much based on the initial proposal, which was for a Wallamar court with legislation and resourcing. You say there's a resource issue. There's one judge responsible for the list? Correct. Sitting how often? So it's one week per month. Right. So and it's the same judge? It is the same judge unless they go on leave and then we do have a second judge who is then able to um, preside whilst the Bolomar list judge is on leave. And the offenders who can come into the list, do they have to live within a certain physical area of the state? They they. Well, the pilot is in Sydney. It's based in Sydney at the Downing Centre. So the catchment area is really defined by any matters that are listed that are committed for sentence from Sydney, Parramatta, Penrith, and Campbelltown. Right. Well, then tell us how how does it operate? So there are there are, initially there are a couple of mentions, and those um, preliminary mentions are just to make sure that the elig eligibility criteria has been satisfied. Just go back a step. Someone is charged and they're brought to the court. Yes. They won't go immediately into the Wallamar list, will they? No. So if they're charged, of course, they appear before the local court. If they enter a plea of guilty, they're committed for sentence to the district court. Um, they might be committed for trial to the district court and then once their matter comes before the district court, they change their plea to a plea of guilty. So by whichever mechanism, they come before the district court. What about a matter that would normally have been sentenced in the local court? Does, does that, that can't get into the list? No. It has to be a matter committed to Correct. the district court. Correct. So once committed to the district court for sentence or for trial, but then there's a change of plea, the matter then is listed for mention in the general list. There is then an application for referral to the Wallama list. Generally speaking, that's by consent. Once that's done, and as long as there is availability in the Wallama list, because it's capped at 50 people, the matter is then listed for first mention before the Wallama list on the first Monday of that list. And on that occasion, um, the, the judge ensures that the eligibility criteria are met, so it's a plea of guilty, the person is an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person, it's not one of the offences that are excluded, and the participant consents. And then there may be in that first mention the tendering of the Crown bundle, for instance, so all of the material that the Crown relies upon, the facts, the record, things of that nature, and the, the judge might order reports, like sentencing assessment reports. Then the matter is adjourned for a second mention, so that is for the next month that Wallamar sits. And that is really, the second mention is really to give the Crown the opportunity to see whether they want to make an application to um, exclude the matter from the list. And on that occasion, at the second mention, what also happens is that the... Um, intake form that is prepared between the first and second mention is tendered. And would the offender be out on bail during this period or would they be in custody? So some offenders are on bail and some offenders are in custody. Depending upon the nature of their Correct. offence. Correct. And their, and their um, criminal record, yeah. things of that nature. So I, when, when 
I last presided, we had about 40 participants. Probably 25 were in custody, bail refused, and about 15 on bail. Some of those who were bail refused will probably remain bail refused. Others, there may be a bail applica a release application made on their behalf. Um, so we've got to our second mention. Yes. And what happens then? Then it's adjourned for what's called a sentencing conversation. And that's really where the substance of the work is done. So the sentencing conversation um, involves at least two Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders. It um, includes... Who will be people known to the offender? Not necessarily. Mm. So, and probably, um, although the elders may know the offender or the offender's family because there are very close connections in Aboriginal communities, as you'd appreciate, they're not necessarily... They're definitely not related and not necessarily known to the offender. Um, so the sentencing conversation includes the elders, the judge, the offender, the lawyers, and the members from the Aboriginal Service Unit, and I can explain what they do. Yeah, you better explain that yes. to us. Yeah. So the Aboriginal Service Unit is a, is a unit within the Department of Communities and Justice. Um, the members of that unit are all Aboriginal people, who have a close connection to community and community organisations. And they support the Wallamar list by coordinating the elders, for example, by ensuring that the intake form is completed between the first and the second mention. And the intake form is basically a form that is completed after an interview with the participant that does the first... Um, uh, it provides information about that person's community, who their mob is, um, whether they have connected with services in the past, what are some of the underlying issues and trauma. So that is um, a preliminary screening tool, let's put it that way. So, so that's prepared before the second correct. mention? Correct. And it's prepared by a member of the Aboriginal Service Unit by, after an interview with the, with the participant or the offender. So that's the role of the Aboriginal Service Unit and one of their team is always present in the conversations. So then we have the elders, the offender, the lawyers, member of the Aboriginal Service Unit, the judge and importantly, the caseworkers or service providers. So some of these offenders may also already be connected to caseworkers. Caseworkers being people who are drawn from what organisation? So it may be a caseworker from community corrections. So community corrections have come to the party and um, have established a dedicated Wallamar unit within the City Office of Community Corrections. One of their officers is always present for every matter um, in the Wallamar list. So it could be a caseworker from community corrections or it could be a caseworker from one of the community organisations such as Weave or Deadly Connections. In some cases, the participant has more than one caseworker around the table. So they may already have tapped in to um, somebody, for instance, from Deadly Connections and from a residential rehabilitation centre. And the caseworker has a responsibility in relation yes. to the offender? How is that responsibility defined? All right. So, so the sentencing conversation involves a whole range of things. It, it, it involves a discussion about the offending. It involves a discussion about the underlying issues. It involves a discussion about the underlying trauma in that person's background that has led to substance abuse, etc. The caseworkers are around the table listening to this conversation. And importantly, what happens at the end of that conversation is that there is a commencement of the conversation about the case plan. Because the next step in this process is the case plan conversation. Well, you better tell us what a case plan is. I will. And uh, so the case plan is formulating what needs to be put in place to support and assist 
that offender so as to reduce the risk of reoffending, to um, provide them with the supports that they need to obtain counselling and treatment for a whole range of issues. It could be to provide them with um, the capacity to obtain employment. The case plan also addresses very fundamental things like many of the participants don't have any form of identification, don't have birth certificates, don't have driver's licences and have accumulated a significant amount of debt as a result of unpaid fines, etc. So once all of those issues are identified, the case plan is formulated and that means that the way in which each of those issues is going to be addressed is articulated and the caseworkers that are sitting around the table during the sentencing conversation and who will be there again for the case plan conversations are allocated the responsibility of ensuring that whatever um, is required to address this particular issue is attended to and reported on in the case plan conversation. So the plan is prepared. Um, how does this system or how does the process work in relation to people who will remain in custody, they won't be given bail, and those who are out on bail? So in terms of people who remain in custody, there's a whole range of issues. It may be as basic as I'm sitting in a cell in custody and there are there are significant lockdowns as a result of COVID. My mental health is suffering. I love art and I am a painter, but as a result of lockdowns, I have not had access to paints and canvas for two weeks. It may be as basic as, well, you are the caseworker from Community Corrections. You will make sure between now and the next conversation that this person is provided with paints and canvases. So that's a very minor example. But in terms of the plan that is developed for the individual offender, will it differ if that person is going to be out on bail as opposed to continue to be in custody? Yes, it will differ. And it will differ in, in, in this way, that the people who remain in custody, well, there's, there's, there are limitations on what can be put in place for them in custody. So it could be, that example that I gave you, it could be something as minor as that, but for them, it's very important because it, you know, it, it sort of addresses their mental health. Um, for people who are on bail, it will include things like um, attending an appointment for an interview for employment. It will sometimes involve um, being admitted to a residential rehabilitation centre. It may involve, if not a residential rehabilitation centre, attending a counsellor for trauma and grief counselling and drug and alcohol counselling. So if you're out in the community, there are a whole range of things that can be put in place for a and case plan. And they're in the plan? Correct. And they impose obligations upon the offender? Yes. And, and responsibilities on the caseworkers. Yeah. So what happens in the case plan conversation is everybody's held to account. The offender is held to account in terms of their response to the case plan, whether they have been attending their um, counselling, whether they went, they did go to the interview for this employment opportunity. Um, but also, let's say, for instance, one of the issues is housing, and this comes up almost every time. And somebody needs some assistance in getting emergency housing. The caseworker is allocated the responsibility of chasing that up. If at the case plan conversation nothing's happened, then the caseworker is held accountable. Why has this not taken place? What steps have been taken to get them housing? And if there have been uh, insufficient steps taken, then, then the caseworker is um, um, accountable. To the judge. To the judge. Can we just go back one step? In the development of the plan, 
does the judge have the final say as to what will be in the plan? How does that work? So the judge has an oversight function, if I can put it that way. The, the matters that need to be addressed are identified by the elders, they could be identified by the judge, and they are identified by the caseworkers. So it's a coordinated approach. Um, but the judge does have the final say in respect of matters that may not have been addressed, but the judge wants addressed. So the judge may suggest, in, in consultation with the elders, for instance, that one of the things that need to be addressed is that the person needs to attend um, on a counsellor so that a comprehensive mental health plan can be prepared and provided to the court on the next occasion. So certainly the judge has, a, has an oversight function and, and also um, obviously can suggest what needs to be addressed if that hasn't already been addressed by the um, caseworkers and the lawyers. And does the prosecution play any active part in the development of the plan? So the prosecutor, the role of the prosecutor in the Wallamar list has been a wonderful thing to observe. Um, they have been very good at striking a balance between their prosecutorial duties and supporting the objectives of the list. So everybody around the table gets an opportunity to contribute to the conversation. The prosecutor might, for example, identify that one of the things that has not been addressed is that the participant requires a very comprehensive mental health treatment plan and they can raise that issue and they can make submissions as to why that is something that needs to be addressed in the case plan. Um, so the, the prosecutor does have a, a very important part to play and can raise those issues. I should also add that the Wallamar list allows for victims of crime to attend and to sit at the table and to have a speaking role, if they wish, to contribute. Of course, that has to be managed um, carefully and the prosecutors do bear the responsibility of, of um, asking whether the victims want to attend, informing them about the objectives of the list and, and whether they want to read out their victim impact statement, for example, or be present in the sentencing conversation. And we, we, we did have two cases where that took place. What was interesting to, to observe was in the cases where the victims did not want to attend, but of, of course had been consulted, um, on multiple occasions, the feedback from the prosecutor to the offender, which was articulated in the sentencing conversation was, I have been in touch with the victim, they don't want to attend, but they want you to know that they are very pleased that you are going to be getting comprehensive or, or intensive treatment, that you are going to a residential rehabilitation. They want um, you to succeed in that. So that sort of feedback is also very powerful. Could be. Now, when these conversations and, well, first of all, the mentions and conversations are happening, is that occurring in a conventional courtroom? Well, yes, um, it is, because we don't have the money for for a. You speak of people around the table. Yes, so yeah, we're around. Was... We're around a bar table. Bar table in a courtroom. Correct. And is the judge robed? Not for the conversations. No, for the first and second mention, um, the judge is robed because that's that does not involve the elders. It does not involve a conversation. It's very much really a um, traditional court Administ process, administrative, administrative process. process. Um, but during all of the conversations, everybody is seated at the bar table and the judge is not robed. Now, if my mathematics are right, we're about maybe two to three months into Correct. the process Correct. at this stage. Correct. Has there been any mention of 
what the ultimate sentence no. might be? No, not not no. So we under the um, current provisions of the Crime Sentencing Procedure Act, the judge has the capacity, as you know, to adjourn the matter for up to twelve months. Um, so some in some cases it may be that the offender is not sentenced for six months, in others nine months, up until 12 months. And that will depend upon how they're progressing. It, will, it may depend upon the nature of the offence, the seriousness of the offence, um, um, their record, things of that nature. Well, if someone's entered into a case plan and it requires a series of things to happen over time, so let's, let's say another three months, does the matter come back before the Wollamah List judge in that three-month period or, or will it be adjourned for three months? Every month the matter is back before. It must come back every Correct. month. What, for a sort of report on... For a ca so once, it, once, once the sentencing conversation has been held, every month for a case plan conversation to monitor how that person is going. And let's assume after six months they're doing everything that was required of them and their progress is assessed to be good, what happens? So it may be that they've reached a point where the sentencing, where the sentence can take place. So let's say, for instance, they have completed their residential rehabilitation, they're back out into, in the community, they've obtained employment, they've been abstinent for six months, there's no reoffending. Um, and it may be that the Wollamah List judge then forms the view that, and with, in consultation with the elders, because it's always in consultation with the elders, that the person's ready to be sentenced. Then they are sentenced, reverting back to the usual court process. So the judge is robed, judge is sitting on the bench, the judge is um, responsible for handing down the sentence. And that sentence must conform to the relevant legislative Correct. provisions. What role, if any, does the fact that the person has been through a plan and performed well in that plan, what part does that play in the ultimate sentencing process? So it will depend. I mean, it, it, obviously it will have some bearing upon um, an assessment of their future prospects of rehabilitation. It will have some impact upon... Um, potentially the weight to be afforded um, or the assessment of their, their remorse and contrition, um, the weight to be afforded sentencing considerations like specific deterrence and the protection of the community. So it'll have an impact on all of those factors. It will depend upon the nature of the offence, the seriousness of the offence, and the person's criminal history as to whether that person, notwithstanding the positive progress, is then sentenced to a community-based order or a term of imprisonment. Much will depend upon how well they've progressed. But it's contemplated that people who do well, whether they be uh, in custody through their period of their plan or whether they be in the community, that their performance in the plan will uh, inform, to some degree, the sentence That's that true. might be imposed. Yes. And when they enter into this process, do they understand that to be the case, that doing well in their plan will maybe of assistance in their ultimate sentence? So they, they do understand that because um, from the very start, from the, from the first mention, the judge interacts with the offender directly. And then once the sentencing conversation and case plan conversations take place, that conversation, again, is conducted very, in very direct terms with the offender. So the offender is told from the outset that their participation and involvement and progress will be relevant to the ultimate sentence. The offender is also told from the outset that their participation in the Wallamar list does not necessarily mean that at the end of the process they will 
be sentenced by way of a community-based order. So throughout the whole process, it's a very honest conversation with the offender as to what is required of them, what is required of their caseworkers, and the fact that there are no guarantees, really, about the ultimate sentence. And let's assume our offender has entered into the plan and after six months has failed to perform some of the obligations uh, that the plan imposed. What's likely to happen then? So it depends upon how they breach or what, what, how they come up short. So, for example, there have, there have been cases where, there have been occasions where the person has failed to maintain contact with their caseworker or their caseworker has attempted to contact them but has been unsuccessful on multiple occasions. Now, in some cases, because of the conversations, it has become apparent that that has been really about the fact that that person is suffering significant mental health issues and has just not been able to respond. Or they are homeless, they've lost their phone and has not maintained contact. On other so if it's if it's if if those if that's what's happening, then it's less likely the person's going to be breached and there's going to be um, more intensive efforts at engaging them. But there has, there has been one or two cases where the person on a case plan has been admitted into residential rehabilitation and they've left. What has happened in those, on those two occasions is that warrants have issued for their arrest. They have been arrested, then back in custody. They have not been discharged from the Wallamar list, but they're not getting bail. Mm. So the conversations continue but now they're in custody and whatever is put in place, it's put in it's place within the limitations of the custodial environment. Mm. Yeah. And I know it's too early to know what will or what has, has happened, but what would we anticipate might happen if at the end of the 12-month period someone was not doing so well? They hadn't been discharged from the Wallamar list, but they weren't doing well enough um, uh, to... Uh, have normally continued in the list and you've run out of time to defer their sentence? Does the court then just have to proceed to sentence the person? Yes, so the court then has to sentence because there's really no power to to um, adjourn the matter any longer. I mean, one of the things that, that we had um, requested in the initial proposal for the Wallamar Court and the reason why we, the reason we wanted legislation was because we thought that it might be very important to have for the court to have some sort of monitoring power post sentence. Yes. We don't have the power to do that now, as you know, unless, of course, it's a the person sentenced to a community corrections order, they breach and they come back. But if the person's sentenced to an intensive corrections order and they breach, they don't come back before the court. Yeah. So we've got very limited capacity for monitoring once a person is sentenced. So if a person has been on the Wallamar program for 12 months, they have to be sentenced. They haven't been doing very well, although they haven't breached by way of further offending, for instance. Then it really depends upon... The, the nature of their offending, how serious it is, what a proportionate sentence will be. It may be that in a given case, the appropriate sentence is an intensive corrections order. And if that's the case, then the conditions can be fashioned yeah. in accordance with the case plan. If it's community corrections order, it can be, again, conditions can be fashioned in accordance with the case plan. And if they breach, they come back before the Wallamar list judge. If it's a term of imprisonment, then what um, we hope for is that during that 12th month that they've been on the Wallamar program, they've built very close relationships with their caseworkers. And many of these caseworkers are very dedicated to their clients. So even though it might be a term of imprisonment, 
then that relationship will continue even for the time that they're in custody with a view to um, providing them with supports once they're released to parole. And is the intention, if it works well, that the number of uh, offenders admitted into uh, the Wallamar list will, in, will be increased? Yes, I think that um, once the the Wallamar list is evaluated, and there's two forms of evaluations, the quantitative and the qualitative, once it's evaluated and there's some data and it's operating as we think it will and the, 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 the um, results are successful, um, then I think what's, what's proposed is that the um, cohort increases and also the sitting time increases. So as I said, it's one week a month. It really can't, I mean, already at 40, there's insufficient time to do justice to the conversations. You've got 40 minutes back before you every That's right. once a month Monday. That's right. That's a lot of work. That's right. And um, the sentencing conversations take anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours. The case plan conversations imagine. take at least half an hour. And even when people are doing well, they, they're really engaged, so they want to talk during yeah. the case bank conversations and let you know how well they've been doing. So it's important that they be given that opportunity, yeah. I imagine. Yeah. So, so, so I think it would be doing an injustice to the conversations and the whole process if you were trying to hurry the conversations along. So we'll need more sitting time for sure. And what all that means, of course, is that um, if this is successful, it will be a resource-intensive yeah. way of... Um, administering justice in relation to Aboriginal offenders. Yes, that's right. But it will it will certainly um, save on the resources spent incarcerating Aboriginal offenders and, of course, the resources that really you can't quantify um, on incarcerating people... Um, the fragmenting of families and communities, um, things of that nature, they're very difficult to to quantify in, in monetary terms or resource terms. So I think it is resource intensive, but the only way that you can effectively reduce reoffending, I think, is to put the resources into the front end of the process. Um, because I think that we know, at least in, in terms of the um, rates of Aboriginal people in custody, what is happening is not reducing recidivism. Um, so I think, yes, it is resource intensive, but I think it will save money at the, at the end of the process. Do you have any idea how many uh, offenders, if the project was open-ended, how many offenders would be eligible to come into a list such as the Wallamar list? So We're talking I, about 50 at the moment, but what do you think the pool might be if I, it was available to everyone? I think, I think, well, it's a difficult question to answer for this reason. If you were limiting the proceedings to sentencing proceedings, which is what we've had to do because of the cap, um, then I think the um, boxer statistics for... Two years ago, or just pre-COVID, there were about 240 matters involving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people being sentenced in the district court statewide. 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 That's in a year. Correct. So if you were limiting it to sentencing proceedings, then let's assume um, that some of those people would be excluded because they're sexual assault matters, you might end up with, let's say, 180 sentencing proceedings. But if you included, which was the initial proposal, sentence appeals from the local court or breach proceedings from the local or district court, then the numbers could be double that. And if you, of course took that approach, you'd be likely to encourage appeals from the local court to the district court as well, wouldn't you? You might, you might, um, you, you might. But I think 
that you see again repeatedly in the local court appeals that come up to the district court, the same sorts of issues. Um, you know, the trauma, the homelessness, the drug addiction, the, the mental health issues, etc. I'm sure they're all there, but I'm just thinking to myself, uh, the chance of getting into a program if it was available would be worth taking for yes. someone who otherwise yes. um, may not have a very good-looking future. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Judge, this is a fascinating discussion. What gave you the idea of developing such an approach to the sentencing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? Well, I think, I mean, I... As um, you raised in the, in the beginning, I, my, I started my career at the Western Aboriginal Legal Service 32 years ago and worked out there for seven years and appeared for thousands of Aboriginal people. Um, when I came back to Sydney, both at Legal Aid and as Public Defender, I continued to appear for Aboriginal people. And um, over 32 years, I've seen the same issues come up, the same underlying issues. And generally speaking, this has not been the case in all um, matters, but generally speaking, the approach to sentencing has not really achieved the goals of reducing offending, assisting people with the supports they need to live functional lives. So um, I think for me it was witnessing this happen at very close range for nearly 32 years um, and seeing that, well reading the literature and seeing how other approaches to sentencing in therapeutic courts seem to have a better success rate. Um, so that was the, the motivating factor. When you say really. therapeutic courts, there you have in mind the drug court? I have in mind the drug court. I have in mind the county Koori court. Mm -hmm. I have in mind some of the Maori courts in New Zealand. Um, and, and, and just the, the feedback from the participants, the elders and the community members about that, that way of engaging with Indigenous offenders and their communities is um, very powerful. I mean, part a very important objective is, of course, reducing reoffending and and just giving these offenders the supports so that they can live functional lives. But another objective of um, the Wallamar list is to have a meaningful and positive engagement with Aboriginal communities so that you can build relationships of respect as opposed to having Aboriginal people and communities um, see the courts as alien, alien mm -hmm. and part of the process that um, uh, alienates communities and individuals. And, you know, the, the, the history of um, Aboriginal people's contact with the courts has not been a happy history. You must have seen that wonderful painting. I can't remember now who painted it, which was a courtroom scene with a white person in the dock. And yes. Every other person in the courtroom is black. Yes. It's a very powerful it statement is. of what many Aboriginal people will face every day that's in so the courts true. of New South Wales. That's so true. And that's why it's so important. I mean, it is a wonderful thing to see around that sentencing table conversation, um, mostly Aboriginal people. So it's the Aboriginal elders. Most of the caseworkers are Aboriginal. Um, the ASU, the Aboriginal service unit members are Aboriginal. Um, so often the people you have around the sentencing and, and case the conversations... The judge is the only white person. The, the judge is the only white person, that's right. Not, um, the, not that the judge is in the dock. But <laughs> no, no, exactly. But, but so it's a, it is very powerful and it means that... Um, it means that the court has the cultural authority 
that it needs to meaningfully engage with offenders, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander offenders, and it also brings an Indigenous narrative to the process, which is really important if you're going to have that respect, because without re that respect you're not going to get um, enga proper engagement and increase the chances of compliance with your orders. You're just not going to. Now, Judge, we, of course, mentioned the fact that you were responsible for developing this idea and ultimately driving its creation. But before 12 months had passed, you were asked to come to this, the Supreme Court. Was it a hard decision to leave behind the District Court and the Wollamah List to come to the Supreme Court? So it was very difficult to leave um, the Wollamah List. It was very difficult. Um, you can imagine what a meaningful process it is and just engaging with the elders and, and um, engaging in that process was personally and professionally a very powerful experience. Um, and it, I'd only presided over the list for six, seven months, so um, it was a very difficult thing to leave behind. It's in very good hands. I know that it's in very good hands, of course. Um, I'm sure I'll continue to have some sort of I'm sure you have input. an acute interest in what's happening. Yeah. Um, but um, it, it certainly is uh, an idea that whose time has undoubtedly come and hopefully will develop and go forward and increase the justice response to Aboriginal people in a better and fairer way. Yeah. That's what we're hoping. Well, Judge, thank you very much for this uh, chat this afternoon. Thank you. Uh, and uh, congratulations on your appointment to the Supreme Court, and we wish you well in your time here. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to Justice Shahir, a judge of the New South Wales Supreme Court. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.